0: Well, good morning. Thank you, Ilya. Thank you uh, for leading us out in worship this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, let me encourage you to uh, open it with me to Proverbs chapter 16. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to uh, use the blue pew one you'll find somewhere in front of you, and you'll find Proverbs 16 on page 539. So in the year 1927, talking almost a century ago, there was this little song that was written, that was put into a uh, hymnal that was published by the Sunday School Publishing Board. It was at the time an an arm of the National Baptist Convention. And for the first 30 years of this song's life, it was virtually unnoticed, very little heard or known. Uh, But then in 1957 a young uh, British singer named Laurie London recorded this song. And over in England, it grew to be number 12 on the UK singles chart that year. Uh, It quickly kind of gained traction coming back across the pond where it was written, uh, where in 1958, this song was the single most played song by radio jockeys in the year 1958. 1958. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you were maybe listening to radio in 1958, but I know there's a few who probably have been. Um, and this was, at the time, the most successful song ever recorded by a British man in the U.S. So what's the song? Well, I found, thanks to YouTube, YouTube's just a great gift, um, It found the 1957 Laurie London version that we are now going to listen to for about 30 seconds. Take a listen. All right. He's got the whole world in his hands. It uh, has been absolutely sung in Christian households over the past 60 to 70 years, probably as much, if not more, than any other song. Um, I know it was among the first ones at our oldest, two memorized. I, I honestly don't think a week goes by in our house that somebody, for some reason, is singing this song. Sometimes it's Rochelle and I. Um <laughs> It's a great tune. It has fun lyrics. There's hand motions to go along with it. And amazingly, it cuts into one of the deepest, most mysterious, most powerful, and I think most comforting of Christian doctrines the sovereignty of God. It's a doctrine that is simple to understand and yet, at times, very difficult to accept. It's simple enough for children to know and to sing about, and deep enough to be mined and explored by adults for their entire lives. And whether or not we think about the sovereignty of God day in and day out, we are all impacted and shaped by it every single day of our lives. We're in the midst of a summer series, um, as John alluded to in his prayer, in, in the book of Proverbs, and we are digging into the way of wisdom. And, and, and the way of wisdom, and how it illuminates the paths of um, God's people's lives uh, day in and day out. And each week, we're kind of taking a specific topic that Proverbs speaks a bunch about to talk about it, apply to us here in the church in 2019. And I start with the sovereignty of God, because Proverbs speaks about it a lot. The rest of the Bible kind of shows it, but the book of Proverbs specifically talks about it, and it's interesting, and Solomon, who wrote the majority of Proverbs, um, often speaks about it in relation to the plans of men and women. When we plan and how that relates to the sovereignty of God, because Proverbs talks a lot about planning, and it talks a lot about planning because it's wisdom for everyday life. And what do we do in everyday life? We plan everything. And so it's vital in the church that we think about something rightly that we're going to do each and every day. Because we are planners by nature, aren't we? Every life stage, we plan. We plan weddings, and we plan funerals, and we plan vacations, and we do financial planning, and we plan projects at work, and we plan interior decorations and renovations, and we plan to lose weight. <laughs> and maybe you plan to put on weight and good muscle, so you plan exercise regiments. We plan the way we raise our children. We plan daily tasks with to-do lists. We plan the course load we're going to take in high school and then in college. We plan the way we maintain and cultivate friendships. We plan career paths. We plan worship services. We plan our outfits. And we plan sales pitches because people are planners. And we spend a lot of time doing it. So how ought we to think about the wisdom of planning in our lives And the sovereignty of God, this God who has the whole world in his hands. Can those two things like actually go together? If we actually believe what the song we just heard, should that kind of diminish our planning and just be like, well, God's just going to do it, whatever he's going to do, and I can just kind of sit back and wait what happens? Or should it enhance our planning or neither? Well, the book of Proverbs is going to be very specific and showing us how these two things fit together. Um, We're going to be in Proverbs 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. It's a pretty unique passage in Proverbs because um, if you're familiar with Proverbs, chapters 10 through 28 are all just kind of disconnected sayings. They're all just proverbial sayings, kind of one line, two lines, speaks about a truth. There's most of the time no kind of rhyme or reason as to why they're putting things where they are. They seem kind of random, again, disconnected. um, Except chapter 16 This is the one place in this section of the book where there seems to be a streamlined argument being put out. And so we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to talk about the relationship with God's sovereignty and kind of mankind's plans. And then at the end, we're just going to get very practical and lay this down, apply this to our minds and to our hearts so that when we leave this place in a little while, we will know the answer to the question, how should I approach planning anything? In my life, So, first, we kind of need to define a couple things. We, we, we need to get some definitions in place, because I say God's sovereignty, and that's kind of a church word, you know what I mean? That's a word that like, everybody hears, and you're like, ah, I think I know what that means, but I'm not really, really sure what that means. So, a couple definitions up front. God's sovereignty is God's power and authority that is able to override all other power and authority. So, nothing can successfully stop the purposes and will of God to come about, that is God's sovereignty. His authority overrides all other authority. And then second, I, what I'm putting as mankind's responsibility, that we have a freedom of choice in our lives. I choose to make decisions dozens of times a day in areas very small and monotonous and very big and life-changing. And that's a freedom of choice. I could choose this, I could choose that. It's not exactly free will. Free will is a very complicated phrase. Probably don't have time to totally unpack that today. No one is really free in the absolute sense. But we do have a freedom of choice. And we will be held responsible for our choices. We're not robots. We're not being dictated to. So then you kind of put those together. Here's a word. It's a theological word. I know it's kind of a big word, but it's an important word to know. The word concurrence. In Scripture, these two things are held together, and they do not contradict one another. God's sovereignty does not negate your freedom of choice, and your freedom of choice does not negate God's sovereignty. And we see it in the Scriptures over and over and over again. The chief most example is at the core of the gospel itself, which we'll come to in a little while. But if you've been at Grace Church, if you've kind of sat under the preaching here, you have heard me in different books, uh, Mark and Jonah, going back to our Genesis series, um, all pretty much every series, every book we walk through, that whenever we come across concurrence in the text, which is, again, fairly often because it's all over the Bible, I bring it up. I say, hey, you see this? God is in control. And at the same time, you see this? They are really making a decision that they're responsible for. And you might think, okay, that's your theological pet. You literally bring it up all the time. And I do bring it up all the time. Because it's everywhere. And it's not just for mental exercise. It's not just to make us smarter. But Proverbs is going to show us, why do I bring this up all the time? Why is this so important? Because I think it's going to be very embedded in the very thoughts and actions of our life each day. So let's walk through this passage. We're going to start with Proverbs 16, 1 through 3. The plans of the heart belong to man. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. So this kind of streamlined argument begins with an affirmation. The plans of the heart belong to man. That's not a negative thing. He's saying that's the way you have been designed. You have been designed to be a planner God made men and women to make and carry out good plans. Uh, we saw last week in the sermon about work um, how, how God ordained the dignity of work in the garden. that Even before sin entered, Adam and Eve have been um, mandated to work and keep the land. And so presumably, if you just carry that forward, they had to make plans to carry out their work well right? Naming the animals, keeping order, having dominion required a plan. God did not dictate this plan. He gave them the mandate, and then the plan belonged to them. Have dominion over the earth, be fruitful and multiply. And it's just right out of the gate. Genesis 1 and 2, we see God does not create robots. God's not looking to just dictate what you need to do each and every day. He creates you with a heart and a mind to plan. But that design does not push God out altogether, Plans belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. It's a both and. God is intimately involved in his creation. He is in control, and his control is exercised through the plans of his people. So there's a common view of God. If, you, if maybe you're in here and you're just not a believer and you're kind of a skeptic and you have some issues with maybe how, what we believe about God, or you have people in your life that you know— um, are not believers and might believe in God in some sense but not really in the sense that maybe you do, uh, a common objection you will hear is that God is kind of like a clockmaker. He created the world but in his creation he sets the clock and then just lets it tick unimpeded. So God's aware God's kind of watching things play out, but he's not ultimately sovereign all over all that happens. He's not in control in that sense. He does not concern himself with the day-in, day-out actions of people. He just lets it tick. But our God is not a clockmaker. Nowhere do you see that in the Scripture. He is not merely observing his creation. He is intimately involved with it, and his judgment is not just upon our actions, but as verse 2 just said, our spirit behind them. So how these kind of two things work together? This is probably a, um, there's no real illustration that talks about concurrence like really well, that really nails it, Um, but there's a couple word images, word pictures that we can think about. Uh, If you're a movie buff and you love movies, and you you can do some research and see some most iconic movies out there have these monologues or these lines that you'll read was not scripted. It was an actor and actress that was given the freedom to just speak off the cuff, to speak improv, and you have really talented men, some of these kind of iconic monologues are just in the moment, in the shot, they decided what to say. And so in that moment, you have the actors and the actresses with this freedom to speak what they want to speak in that moment, but ultimately, the director of this film will decide, does this go in the movie or not? Right, So an actor, act, actor has the freedom to choose, but ultimately it's the director that's going to decide whether or not this makes it. So man plans, man makes choices, God decides. And then Solomon, the again author of this part of the book, makes this very kind of astute assertion that all the ways of man are pure in his eyes. And this is kind of an indictment on us that we fool ourselves more than anyone else. We are master justifiers, and we often let ourselves off the hook for less than pure thoughts or actions because we're the exception. So it plays out like this. Well, like, I know I shouldn't be watching this and streaming this show on Netflix, but I could be doing way worse. I know I shouldn't drink that much, but I was with family and I wasn't driving. I know I'm fudging the numbers a little bit at work and this isn't totally above board, but this way I will make more money in which I can donate more charitably and take care of my family. I know I shouldn't talk like that, but I'm from Jersey, man, and that's how we talk in Jersey. So yeah, it's not the best, but I mean, I'm from this neighborhood, I'm from this city, this is how I talk. We are master justifiers and Solomon just nails it, we are often pure in our own eyes. But God cares about the spirit behind our actions. He cares not so much about the plans, but the heart we plan with. And as you read Proverbs, you will see this pop up again and again, the attention put towards our inner life, not merely what pops up on the outside. Proverbs twelve five: the thoughts of the righteous are just, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Proverbs 16.25, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the way it leads to death. And then verse 3 lays out the most probably important principle of this whole sermon, the whole principle of planning. It says this, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say what we often do. It doesn't say commit your plans to the Lord. It doesn't say make your plans and then say God bless that. I I, want to do this, I want to do this and then give me the prayer afterwards. Say God, I want to do this. Could you bless those plans? He says no. First, commit yourself to the Lord. Everything about you, your soul, your heart, your mind and in doing that, your plans will be established. Because your plans will now more reflect his plans. Your will will be conformed to his will. So that's God's view in planning. Next, let's read verses 4 and 5. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured He will not go unpunished. So now we see God's justice. I think Solomon is almost um, anticipating an objection to what he just wrote. Because another common objection to God and to God's sovereignty, God having the whole world in his hands, is this problem of evil. We agree, in this fallen world, evil things happen. Tragedies occur People seemingly get away with really evil plans. Talk about planning. What about the peoples that plan evil and get away with it? People who take advantage of the weak, people who get rich without any integrity. people who operate above the law in this kind of untouchable realm where justice never seems to reach them. This is the lament famously expressed by the psalm writer in Psalm 73 in verses 3 through 5, when he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are flat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, stricken like the rest of mankind. And all of God's people say, Amen. I look at the evil out there, and they're doing great. And I'm God's people, and I'm suffering here. What is happening? God must not have the whole world in his hands, because if he did, things wouldn't be so jacked up in the world. That song does not stand when you get outside these walls and go look at your next headline on the news. And I think Solomon anticipated this, because right away, in verses 4 and 5, he just said, God has made everything for its purpose, listen, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant, who devises evil, will, rest assured, not go unpunished. I mentioned in the introduction that the sovereignty of God is very simple to understand, but very difficult to accept at times. And I think this is most true when it comes to the problem of evil. If God is so good, why is the world so bad? And for all that we don't fully know, We are called to cling to what we do know. Now, listen closely. God either causes or permits all that happens in this world to happen, including evil, without himself being the author of evil. And he uses all things, including evil, to carry out his perfect purposes. That could be a tough pill to swallow. But we see it again. Proverbs says it. The rest of the Bible shows it. And we see it most powerfully and clearly in Genesis chapter 50. If you're familiar with the story of Joseph, he was a man who was sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers planned and devised evil against him. And that sent him into slavery for his virtually whole first half of his life down in Egypt. But it eventually led to um, a set of circumstances that, that led to the rise of his role in the Egyptian government where he ended up saving the brothers who sent him into slavery from a famine because of his position and his wisdom. And after all this happens, crazy story, he says this single line to his brothers. Genesis 50:20, As for you... You meant evil against me. Look, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Nothing can thwart God's plan. All things will be used for his purposes. And listen, there is no such thing as getting away with it. Perfect justice will always be carried down. And if you read the rest of Psalm 73, it's incredible. that The the psalmist eventually gets there, and it's powerful. Next, let's keep reading. See where he goes next. Verses 6 through 9. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It's probably one of the most famous proverbs right there, 16:9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So as this again sustained argument gets carried through by Solomon, he anticipates something else. Okay, good. All evil will not go unpunished. But then that also sets in right behind it a little bit of a fear. Because to the statement, all evil will eventually be punished, that stirs up comfort. Comfort that God will carry it out on everything we see, everything evil, and no one will get away with it. But then it becomes a little bit of a fear when we realize that we too are capable of evil. Everyone loves the idea of perfect justice until they realize it will also be carried out against them. We just drove back from Wisconsin this week. And i have always reminded this on a road trip. Everyone loves the idea of the police keeping the road safe until you're the one going past them on the hill in I-80 going 85. Right? So if somebody speeds past you, you're like, that is unsafe. I hope they get pulled over. <laughs> but then you come down the hill around the corner and perfect speed trap, and you're like, I have a family on board. We're trying to get to the next rest stop. Like You start justifying immediately why you're going 85. We love the idea of justice, but then when it gets turned on us. We don't love it. What happens when the problem of evil is not a headline on the news, but a reality in our own heart? And to this, he just cues us into the grace and the mercy of our God, who, by steadfast love and faithfulness, atones for iniquity. And the fear of the Lord, a repetitive theme all throughout Proverbs, a key to wisdom, turns us toward him to seek forgiveness, to seek that atonement, and then turn away from evil. In in the Old Testament, the time Solomon is writing this, uh, atonement for sin was accomplished through the blood sacrifice of a pure and perfect animal. And that was, as we know, pointing to something greater that was coming. But it was established ever since the beginning that without a substitute— Without an atonement, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But in experiencing this forgiveness, in turning toward the Lord in faith, those people who are truly atoned for turn from evil. Not perfectly, but we grow in that. We grow in being able to turn away from that. And that redeems us, and that regenerates our heart, which again, plans the way. So God designed you to plan, God designed you to live actively, to work hard, to contribute to the kingdom of God and plan your way in doing so. And while we plan, the Lord establishes our steps. This is not meant to discourage us. This is not meant to be like, well, what choice do I have then? If God's just going to do what God's going to do. Because rightly seen, rightly seen what it is to be forgiven of sin, of evil in our own heart, of being reconciled to the Lord and now he will not leave us nor, com- nor forsake us. That establishes our steps. Let's read now verses 10 through 15. We've seen God's view. We've seen God's justice, God's sacrifice. Now verses 10 through 15. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death and a wise man will appease it. Verse 15. In the light of a king's face there is life and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. The final installment of this prolonged proverbial argument leads to the description of a king, a perfect king whose mouth does not sin in judgment, who has a throne that is just, that has balanced scales, a throne that is established in righteousness and loving what is right. And if you've been with us in this series, do those words sound familiar? In the first week of our series, we defined wisdom from Proverbs 1, as having a bent towards righteousness and justice and equity. And here we get a picture of the perfect king who does it. The world hungers for wise leaders. We hunger for a wise king, one without sin, in whom the light of his face is life. And every single king in this world past, present, and future has fallen short except one. Proverbs 16, in the sovereignty of God, points to and foreshadows the wisdom personified in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the ultimate and final king of Proverbs. He is the long-awaited for king that the people of Israel have looked for. And this Jesus would also be the final and ultimate sacrifice the shedding of innocent blood that atones for the sin of those who would put their faith in him, the lamb who was slain, who not only provides redemption, but whose story serves as the ultimate climax of this relationship that we've been talking about between God's sovereignty and mankind's responsibility. The cross of Jesus Christ shows these two things come together in the most powerful way in the history of the world because the cross was the result of both God's perfect will and man's sinful action. It was the foundation of evil that the Pharisees combined with the Sadducees and the governor of Rome conspiring together to wrongfully accuse, convict, and sentence an innocent man to death by crucifixion on a Roman cross. It was evil that sent him there. And yet, at the same time, God, in his perfect ordained will, sent Jesus into the world to be the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sin of mankind through the death of his son on that same cross. That's concurrence. That's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and held together, God's purposes will always win. And so as we set to apply this to the church today, We have this intimate connection between God's control and our actions. And rightly understood, God's control should not destroy your planning. It should enhance it. It should be like pumping steroids into it. Because the whole Bible and and God's plan for his kingdom points to Jesus Christ. And so the call on everyone's life, first and foremost, is to repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of that sin. This is, this is, we just saying about it, only God can make dry bones come alive, amen? Only God can speak life into us. That is God's sovereignty over us, and yet we are called throughout Scripture to make a choice, to repent of sin, to believe. Those two things do not negate one another, they come together. God's sovereignty, your choice, leads to salvation. And I urge you to do so before we talk about anything else in practical planning, which we're going to now talk about. Wise planning begins with salvation, with the source of life and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you that then can work through you. And as we grow, and we are all growing, whether you become a believer today or you've been a believer for 50 years, our goal today is to become more like Christ, to grow in Christ likeness. And in doing so, as we pursue Christ, we will become better planners. So how should the people of God plan? I kind of promised throughout the summer we're going to be very practical. We're going to be able to kind of attach this and get our hands on this really easily. So kind of rapid fire, here are some practical applications for us when you think about planning in your life. Number one, plan to the glory of God. You know, we all the time benefit from other people's wise planning. You drove a car here this morning, you benefited from somebody else being wisdom, knowing how to build that car. You drove over a bridge, you uh, grew in wisdom, you benefited from the wisdom of somebody else knowing, how do you build a bridge? Like, oh my gosh, where do you start? Somebody had wisdom to start that. The medication you took this morning was the result of people's wisdom and wise planning to make that medication useful. So all people can make plans But only Christians can make plans with the glory of God in mind. As their primary motivation, as their primary aim, that as I plan this, I want the glory of God to be made much of. To build his kingdom. To always have an eye towards uh, how we can do that and make those plans in whatever aspect of life. Honoring him, illuminating him as Savior, and allowing us to be a witness to him. And so this is big planning, where are you going to live, where are you going to work, who are you going to marry, are you going to marry, who are you going to make friendships with, kind of big life-shaping planning. But this is also your Tuesday morning. This is also the kind of most monotonous planning you have done, can be done to the glory of God. Something even as simple as a grocery list. I'm reading a book right now by Rosaria Butterfield um, called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it for some summer reading. She writes this My hospitality includes my grocery lists and the grocery lists of my neighborhood friends and the meals I'll be delivering and the people I anticipate serving that week. Not a day goes by when I do not think about hospitality and table fellowship, the lost Christian art of loving inclusion, the lost witness of what a Christian family really means. All planning, even grocery planning, can be done to the glory of God. That's number one. Number two, plan open-handed. We need to be okay with the prospect of our plans failing. We do not make perfect plans. And our plans often don't go according to plan. And here's the thing, that's okay. The success of our plans is not what's most important. It's the kind of people we're becoming in our planning. So Christ-likeness is more important than success in the world's eyes. And if we're not careful, we can hear a sermon like this, we can read Proverbs like this, and we can almost without knowing it, start buying into a kind of prosperity gospel. If my plans go well, God must be happy with me. If my plans go awry, or something interrupts my plans, God must be punishing me. And that is the most dangerous place to slip into. Because that is not the case that the Bible puts forward. And to not recognize that is to set yourself up for this just immense anxiety around all the plans we make that makes everything harder, that's trying to look around every bush to see, is God happy with me? Is he not happy with me? This is working out. This is not working out. That's not how God calls us to plan. We can plan with confidence knowing that as we commit ourselves to him, he will establish our plans and yet we can plan open-handed, knowing that our value and our worth is not contingent and our plan's succeeding. And the reason is because we are already secure in God's plan. And God's plan did not fail. And God's plan will not fail. So, practical example, um, you might have seen some matching t-shirts in the front row this morning. Uh, at the end of the service, we're going to call our youth um, missions team, that is this Thursday flying to the DR to do ministry down there with handfuls of hope, and we're going to pray for them and commission them as a church and send them out. And let me tell you something, even from a distance, I know this team has been planning. They're in matching shirts, man. Like something is planning here. And I mean, probably what year, a year and a half, that this team started to meet regularly, training themselves in Christ'-likeness, growing together as a team, and yes, making plans for these 10 days that they'll be down there. But something that if you've been part of this church, you have definitely heard Pastor Jeff say, rarely do any of these trips go to according to plan. One of his first training things is he goes, guys, we're going to plan this, and we're going to be ready for this plan to change, like the moment we set foot on the ground. So that doesn't diminish them. That doesn't mean they're just going to go in and just winging it. They have set plans, but they know more than often they're going to change. So yes, they plan, but God is going to establish this team's steps down in the DR. And he's going to grow them more into likeness of who he is. And he's going to use them and work in them so that he can work through them to the people in the DR. God cares more about your spirit and your character than your plans. So plan open-handed. Number three, plan with assurance. The sovereignty of God in our planning means we can continue to do so even in the midst of very real suffering we experience. It is very easy to praise God's sovereignty when everything works out for good. You hear athletes do it all the time. So I want to thank God for this awesome success I've had. I don't often hear that quote when somebody just blew it in the game. What about the times when everything hits the fan? Can we still praise God's sovereignty then? And in these moments of very real suffering, we lean into the promise that all of our lives, even our suffering, has a purpose. And our suffering is never meaningless because it's not ultimate, and that God is always working. And he's working in us in times of suffering, often more than he is even in times of prosperity. And we may never know why something happens. We never might be able to look at it and say, I think this is a good thing. We might not be able to see that. We're not called to put a, face smile, a fake smile on our faces. We lean into the emotions God has made us with to be angry at times and sad and depressed but we can be rest assured that we have a God who is never distant from us, even in the hardest moments. And in those moments where we feel like we're flailing and we can't see him and we can't feel him, we can know he never loses his grip on us. So I'm in a life stage right now. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old that just love riding on the shoulders. First of all, maybe I have weak shoulders. Man, it hurts when a kid gets on your shoulders. Like, it just looks a lot less painful until it happens. Um, But here's another thing, that when my kid... um, especially my son, who's like, you know, four, but he's like 60 pounds. Don't ask. Um, He gets on my shoulders, and despite me telling him he doesn't have to, he death grips me like I can't breathe, all right? So, um, and and that's just how it goes. But then, you know, he's four, so he weakens over time, okay? So after 30 seconds, that grip's a little bit less strong. And after a minute or two minutes, he actually, like, thinks he's holding on, but he's not, and that moment where he loses his balance or I take a little bit of a false step and he begins to shift, you can feel his whole body tighten because he doesn't have a grip on dad and he's about to go down. But it's in that moment when he loses his grip that he realizes I had him the whole time. And I'm not letting go. And I think this is so true in the Christian life when we are struggling to get a feel for God and we can't see him in a situation, we can't feel him in the situation And everything tenses up. Those are the moments when we realize he's had us the whole time. And he was never relying on on our grip on him because he has a firm grip on us. God will never waste your suffering. And his plan is always working. And it's always perfect, even when we don't know why. But we do know it's not because he does not love us. Because at our worst moment, his son entered our world and was sent to be the ultimate king to die for us. So we plan and we grow and we suffer and we get back on our feet. We plan more and we know that he will establish our steps because his steps are good and right. Two more, very fast. Number four, plan with others a major problem proverbs will warn us against is the folly of planning alone proverbs 11:14 where there is no guidance a people falls but in an abundance of counselors there is safety proverbs 15:22 without counsel plans fail but with many advisors, they succeed do not be an island do not be a lone planner especially in the context of a church that our call is to be close enough with people in our faith community where they are empowered to honestly speak into your life and you will hear them because God has put them around you to help you plan there's a lot of reasons to be part of a church and one of them is that your planning will go awry if you just do it alone why? Because you're a master justifier, because nobody's like speaking into you, nobody's warning you, I've been down this path before, watch out for this, and you're just going in blind. I remember I was part of this church before I ever had even an inkling for ministry. I never thought I would go into ministry. And even sitting in this room, I have good friends who knew me before I was ever a pastor. And that process that was multi kind of years of trying to think through and process is this something I'm called to? There are people in this room that were more valuable than they even probably realize today in guiding me and helping me plan this. To affirm that this is the direction that they feel like God is calling me into. Surround yourself with people. Get so close that they can affirm or discourage being God's advisors for your life. Plan with others. And then last, plan for the good of others. All this little monotonous planning we do can always serve a greater purpose, that your planning is never about you, that ultimately God uses your planning to bless others, to serve the least of these, to plan in your budget room to buy some backpacks for kids in Patterson for this fall. For little examples over and over again that we can use, that God can say, my plans are going to be used to see others thrive, to see others be blessed, because we are all in this together. And God provides for his people through his people. And the best heroes in the Bible are the ones who, by their planning, God used them to bless others. And in Christ, we have the Spirit of God in us to do likewise. And Solomon gave you the pathway. How do I start doing this? Number one, commit yourself to the Lord. Commit all of yourself to the Lord and wise planning will follow. And so, the sovereignty of God, as we close, like we started, um, based on where you stand, can either be very disturbing or very comforting. It could be the jagged rock you bang your head against or the soft pillow you rest your head upon. But, rightly seen by faith and not by sight, we can take it as great comfort. As a great encouragement and something that enhances our planning and not something that destroys it. And we trust in Christ and we plan well because, after all, He's got the whole world in His hands. Let's pray.